Hello again. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy and space science podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and uh, we'll be chatting about oh, a lot of things today. Uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg, or let's be more specific, the black hole or the star? That is the question, and it looks like the answer might be a little bit of a flip on what we've always believed. We'll also be looking at SpaceX. Of course, they've been working on their latest uh, set of rockets, uh, the SpaceX rockets. They've got uh, one called Starship that's uh, in the testing phase, but uh, they've got plans for an even bigger one. And the news is it could have military applications. What does that mean, I wonder? That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as always, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hi, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Very good to see you again. Good to see you too, up and about. You've been um, in the wars lately. Uh, turned, yeah. you, you, find, you found out what bit you the other day. Yeah, uh, so, well, yes, that's right. It was a tick. A tick. Uh, but um, a tick, a little tiny insect. And we know um, that ticks are, they abound in this district. People sometimes say the northern beaches of Sydney are the tick capital of New New South Wales. I knew that. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I thought it was a tick bite. But then when I started getting other lumps appearing and getting fevers and starting to get really, really crook, yeah. um, I thought oh, I can't have been a tick, but that's what it was. Wow. Uh, I've had something called rickettsia. That doesn't sound nice at all. No. Yeah. Other, other, otherwise known as spotty fever. <laughs> Oh, how horrible! <laughs> well, at least they've at least they've figured it out, Fred. That's the main thing. Yep, they didn't. Yeah, it took, them, took a couple of people about half an hour to work it out. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, we went on holidays uh, up to a place called Blackhead, which is a beautiful little beach area. Used to be a sleepy village. Now it's probably now been commercialised beyond help. Yeah, um, but yeah, we used to go um, down to the lagoon and catch fish, and you know, go in and out of the bush and the mangroves and all that. And one night, uh, my, my friend, we were staying at his place, um, lifted his shirt up and there was a tick buried deep into his abdomen. I mean, it was right in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. horrible, horrible things they are. Um, they got it out with, what is it, methylated spirits. They, it, it, yeah, yeah. You should, that's right. To cool it, you try and freeze it yeah. so um, so it becomes inactive. Yeah, that's right. well, it, ba- it backed out in an awful hurry once that stuff was on it. But um, Yeah, so that was meth. Well, yeah, okay, that's something to bear in mind. Mm. <laughs> I do have some methylated Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad you're on the mend. That's the, that's the good news. Now let's get. Hopefully, I am. Yeah, yeah. Let's get on to our first story. This this is big news, and not surprisingly, comes from data collected by the James Webb Space Telescope, and it's looking into the early universe. and And we've been getting we uh, we've been getting questions about this from our audience because a couple of people have oh. have come in and said, "Look, it doesn't add up. The age of the universe doesn't correlate with those early galaxies. It do- it doesn't make sense. Something else must have happened." And now they've been they've actually been looking into this, and it looks like our audience uh, members who have brought this up uh, are on the money. It looks it it hasn't been absolutely um, utterly confirmed yet, 
Uh, but if they're right, this really turns things around in terms of uh, the early universe, doesn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, I think it's a great credit to our listeners and our viewers that they do ask questions mm. that um, uh, are also occupying, uh, you know, the um, the, the uh, uh, scientists who are really looking at the history of the early universe. And what's done this is the James Webb Telescope, the fact that, yes, we have observed galaxies, which are, you know, we see them as they were when the universe was less than 400, sorry, 400 million years old, remembering that it's 13.8 billion years is the age of the universe. That comes from really reliable um, uh, observations and theoretical background. It's very hard to, to push it back any further, even though, as you and I have spoken about, some scientists have tried to do that uh, and say, well, the universe must be older. But that's not what the majority of scientists believe. We are pretty hooked on the 13.8 billion year age of the universe. So the problem then is, you see these galaxies, which are, um, they've got supermassive black holes at their centers uh, and are relatively mature. And so how are these, you know, we didn't think we could get galaxies looking like that with a supermassive black hole at the middle within the first few hundred million years of the universe. So how do you reconcile these? And I, I think the bottom line uh, is sort of what you've already hinted at. We have tended to uh, draw the inference that black holes generally, and particularly supermassive black holes, are products of uh, the centres of galaxies where there's a, a richness of stars. And because there are all those stars there, the black holes gobble them up and they become supermassive. Um, but that takes time. And what this new work is doing, uh, and it's being led by some people I know, actually, uh, Johns Hopkins University and in uh, in uh, the Sorbonne in, in France, um, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, of course, in Baltimore, they... Uh, what they've done is they've turned that picture on, on its head, uh, which is to say, well, maybe the black holes came first. Mm. Um, and so what they're suggesting is that black holes and probably big black holes as well uh, really uh, were formed with the Big Bang itself. Uh, so rather than black holes not being there uh, when, uh, you know, when galaxies form and then accumulating uh, their, their, their mass by gobbling up stars after stars are formed, uh, sorry, after, yeah, after galaxies have been formed, rather than that, they're turning it on its head. So um, what he says, it's actually quite subtle facts, though. So what you've got to, what you've got to imagine is a universe that creates black holes. Now, uh, even uh, people like Hawking were talking about the possibility of uh, primordial black holes, black holes that are created uh, within the aftermath of the Big Bang. And maybe we're seeing uh, this this theory carried a bit further forward because nobody's ever observed what a primordial black hole might look like. Yeah. But the argument that um, that uh, Joe Silk and his colleagues, uh, the, he's a principal author of this work, a very, very eminent cosmologist, uh, what he's saying uh, is that rather than black holes and galaxies uh, being formed in, in the reverse order there, galaxies are formed first, black holes 
inside them are formed afterwards. Yeah. Rather than that, uh, it's it's the other way round. But the subtlety is, and I'm going to quote Joe Silk here, we're arguing that black hole outflows. And by that he means the um, the winds that we know that black holes generate when they're accreting material, uh, you get these um, relativistic, that means very high speed, uh, winds of material and radiation too coming from the uh, the poles of the of the a black hole, and by the poles I mean direction perpendicular to the accretion disk, the disk of material surrounding where all the stuff's going in. So th- they're saying we're arguing that black hole outflows crushed gas clouds, turning them into stars and greatly accelerating the star formation. Uh, otherwise, it's very hard to understand where these bright galaxies came from because they're typically smaller in the early universe. Why on earth should they be making stars so rapidly? Mm. So, uh, yeah, so the, the idea is the black holes are driving this uh, rapid star formation by these these violent winds. It, it's quite extraordinary because uh, it, 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 and as I said earlier, it tips all the previous theories upside down. Uh, so so what, he, what they're basically saying is that the Big Bang happened and very, very quickly after that, these... Um, huge black holes formed and then they um, caused the, the, the stars to be created at a great number very quickly, which then formed the galaxies. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. So um, what, what you know, you, the, some uh, a kind of uh, counter-argument you might throw at this is that, well, even with the James Webb Telescope, we can't see any evidence of these violent winds mm. Uh, the jets of material that are coming out of the black holes, uh, but what he's what Silk says is that they're too far away. Um, in fact, to quote him, we can't quite see these violent winds or jets far, far away, but we know they must be present because they because we see many black holes early on in the universe. These enormous winds coming from the black holes crush nearby gas clouds, turn them into stars. That's the missing link that explains why these first galaxies are so much brighter than we expected. And um, the article that I've been reading about this, which is on the fist.org page, comments that uh, the young universe, uh, as seen by Joe Silk and his team, uh, the young universe had two phases, uh, in which the first phase was this kind of high-speed jets and outflows from the black holes, accelerating the star formation. But then in the second phase, the outflows slowed down. Um, and so uh, you've, you've got another phase where the gas clouds are collapsing again, still forming stars, but he's actually pointing to magnetic storms in the supermassive black holes as being a, a cause for that. So you've got two dif- distinct uh, phases of uh, star birth in the very, very early universe. And maybe um, that, you know, that will account for why they are why they are brighter than we expected them to be. Mm. It, it, uh, th- this, again, uh, underlines how um, amazing the James Webb Space Telescope has been because we've, we've said all along, once it got up there, it would start opening up uh, yeah. areas that we've we've been wondering about for a long, to- long time and, and potentially coming up with answers. I, I suppose we should qualify this by saying this isn't this isn't absolute. They've got to do more work to prove 
yes, that's theory, right. yeah. uh, which they also have to do through the James Webb Space Telescope. But it, it is starting to look like they've come up with a um, a, a new beginning to the universe, which is a, it's pretty astounding, isn't it? If 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 it's true, that's that's a major achievement. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it'll be really interesting to see how uh, how the um, uh, you, you know just how uh, the astronomical community and the cosmology community takes this paper, how they uh, react to it. Um, it's only just come out. The paper, by the way, is which came first, supermassive black holes or galaxies? Insights <laughs> from the JWST. There you go. And and uh, I, I, I might. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying, and they're saying supermassive black holes came first. Yeah, they are, yeah. Mm. Um, I One of the authors is somebody I know pretty well because I've worked in a collaboration with her, Rosie Wise. Uh, she was one of the leading members of the RAVE project that I was very deeply involved with uh, in the first uh, decade of this century. Uh, Rosie is not somebody who pulls things out of the air or anything. She has her feet very firmly on the ground in terms of um, you know the astrophysics and the physics that go into these things. So um, I think this is likely to be uh, an important, or seen as a very important paper, maybe pivotal in its uh, in its importance. And but by the way, I'm not suggesting that Joe Silk, the lead author, is in any way uh, doesn't have his feet on the ground. He certainly does too. Uh, it's just that I know Rosie a lot better, and yeah, I know what she's like. She's very very thorough. Well, it makes makes my next question mute, but um, yeah, I was going to ask how you feel about this theory. Do, do you think it has legs? But uh, if they're as astute as I you do, say, yeah. Um, yeah, obviously yeah. it does. Yeah. Mm. yeah, these are people with far bigger brains than mine, Andrew, and they're um, yeah, they're not ones to to you know to go off half, half cock or anything like yeah. that. They would they would have made sure that their uh, all their observations and theory tie up tie up together. Mm. You have got the brains the size of a planet, by the sound of it. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. All right. If you want to read that story, and it's well worth reading, it is on the phys.org website. And, uh, yeah, it's just um, it's quite mind-blowing. And uh, I know quite a few people who have sent us in questions will be really keen to, to read about that because they've been saying this all along. Something else happened, and it looks like you were right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to another story that uh, has uh, applications or implications that uh, could have a few people going, oh, you, are you kidding me? This They're not going to do this, are they? Uh, and that is, uh, of course, um, we've heard of NASA. We've heard of SpaceX. They're working together and they're going to try and send uh, people back to the moon in the very near future. But uh, SpaceX is working on something else that has got the military intrigued, Fred. Uh, what's happening here? Yeah, it, it's, uh, as you've said, it's the SpaceX work on their the next big thing, if I can put it that way, uh, which has already had two test flights, uh, none of which... Uh, were successful. Uh, the second one was nearly successful. Uh, it was um, basically during the separation of the first stage from the second stage that things went wrong. Uh, it's called Starship, uh, and the um, the uh, I should say that the organisation SpaceX is planning uh, a third test flight 
uh, actually it might even be this month. Uh, it's going to be very soon, so we might be reporting on that at some point down the track. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the other two last year ended in explosions. But what you what you've got with this ginormous uh, spacecraft is something that can lift um, up to one hundred and fifteen tons to low Earth orbit. Wow! So. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the the real reason for this work being done is because of Elon Musk's vision to send people to Mars. That's why he's built this spacecraft. It's an enormous thing, mm. <laughs> Starship. Um, and he's focused on uh, getting people to Mars. NASA, meanwhile, is also focused on Starship, but that's because the upper stage of Starship uh, is destined to be the landing vehicle uh, to put astronauts on the moon for the Artemis three uh, um, space mission, uh, which is, I think it's still scheduled for 2020. I think it's 2026 that it's slipped back to now. Yes. Because uh, it, it will, they, they, they need a vehicle that will, a large vehicle that will set down astronauts and uh, equipment on the moon surface. Uh, NASA has chosen SpaceX's Starship to do that. So that's the focus there. But what we're hearing about now, and this is a, another news item, once again, actually, from phys.org, uh, um, it is a news item that suggests that the U.S. military, uh, namely the Department of Defense with SE at the end rather than CE, which is what we have, uh, that the, um, there has been... They, they, they presented some uh, work at the Space Mobility Conference uh, held at the Orange County Convention Center. Apparently, that was earlier this month. Uh, what the Defense Department wants to um, wants to use it for is point-to-point -point cargo transfer on the Earth. Mm. So not necessarily, um, you know, well, n not necessarily um, humans, but at least uh, getting, if you need to get a lot of kit from one place to another very quickly, you can do it in an hour yeah. if you've got a starship at your disposal. Um, so I, I might quote, actually, uh, there's a, uh, one of uh, SpaceX's senior advisors, Gary Henry. He says, uh, rocket cargo point to point is not the reason we're building starship. We're building starship to get to Mars. But what we're finding is it's a system we're putting together that has profound impact for national security. And one of them just happens to be rocket point to point, mm -hmm. uh, which just means using a rocket to get from one place to another. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so supplies possibly, maybe troops one day down the track. But um, I believe that the Defense Department is very, very interested uh, in fact, we hear that they began looking at the idea 20 years ago. Uh, but because now we've got this spacecraft that is almost ready to go, I wouldn't mind betting that there's a good chance uh, that the next test flight of Starship actually is completely successful. It's the way Elon Musk and his colleagues learn uh, by breaking things and work out, working out what they need to do to stop them breaking. He, he, breaks, so, he breaks a lot of things. <laughs> he does, Yeah. <laughs> Um, but there's an, an interesting quote here from uh, somebody called uh, Gregory Spangers, who's the uh, chief scientist for the U.S. Air Force Research Lab. Uh, and he says, 
envision a number of containers sitting in a warehouse down in Cape Canaveral. Uh, we go to an alert level. We pull them up. You start putting them on the rocket. At each successive alert level, your time to launch shrinks and shrinks and, shr and shrinks until we can get it down to one hour. Um, and apparently, the um, the teams that work with uh, with uh, Spanches, they've they've already been making mock-ups of the cargo bay for of the Starship, trying to work out how you can do that. Mm. To me, um, to me, the thing that is interesting about this, because uh, we're we're all lovers, not fighters, in the world of astronomy. But you know, I think you could imagine this having enormous. Uh, humanitarian benefits as well. Yes. You had to get stuff in large quantities very quickly from one place on the earth to the other. Um, it, it, it would it would probably be a very good way of doing it mm -hmm. if you could afford it. That's the thing. But that's the whole, um, you know, the nub of the matter with Starship is uh, that it's cheaper because of it's all a matter of scale. Uh, I mean, the, the SpaceX's uh, reusable Falcon 9 rockets have brought the cost down typically of getting something into orbit from $20,000 a kilo, kilogram to $2,000 a kilogram. That's a factor of 10. Yeah. But Starship will bring it down even more. And so it's really very, very interesting to uh, to um, uh, look at the kind of possibilities. Um, in fact, uh, the figure I've seen, and this is pounds rather than kilograms, $90 a pound to get into orbit. Uh, what's that per kilogram? 2.2 .2 times 9 is about 20. Mm -hmm. Sorry, about 200 then. Two, $200 per kilogram. So it's a tenth again. It's come down by another an, another factor of 10. Yeah, but I, so, I, think yeah, these are, I think they're talking about it becoming even cheaper uh, in the long yeah. term when they when they yeah. build these bigger rockets and, and uh, have more of them operating. And they, they're talking about dropping the price to, um, what, about $18 a kilo, $20 a kilo, oh, $9 a pound. $20. Yeah, so like you said. But the um, point I'm getting at is that that is equivalent to what it costs them now to transport this thing by plane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the military transports are about $20 a kilo. And so if they yeah. can do it in a rocket, the advantage is time. They do it in minutes to an hour rather than hours to days, which sometimes yes, is the right. case with with um, standard yeah, aircraft transport. Right. Uh, yeah. We're basically we're basically talking suborbital flight, aren't we? Well, that's right. Sorry, we didn't really um, make that point. Um, it's uh, yeah, suborbital flight is what it's about. It's about putting the thing up into a, a parabolic trajectory, a ballistic trajectory, uh, and bringing it down. With Starship, you'd have to bring it down in a pretty specialized spaceport. Uh, because that's a very, very big machine, mm. uh, and it's not something you can just dump down anywhere. One way of doing it might be to have offshore platforms, things of that sort, Andrew. That are, yeah. which is what, of course, they do with with the Falcons. Um, but just um, take it one step further. This is also in the, I, I guess, the game plan of uh, Virgin Galactic. Uh, they are very keen to use the. Uh, Virgin Galactic, um, you know, the mothership and space plane system, not just for up and down joy flights, which is kind of what it's doing at the moment, but to do suborbital flight that will take you from London to Sydney 
in about uh, an hour or thereabouts, less than an hour. That's just, yeah. Uh, how bad is the jet, jet lag going to be then? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, yeah, it would be very interesting because, uh, yes. Well, if you, let's, say, let's say you leave uh, London at midday. It takes one hour yeah. to get to Australia. The time here would be, um, let me think, Depends midday. About, it'd be about yeah, yeah, it's it's around midnight or 10 p.m. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so right. depends on the. So you, you're wide awake. You've landed. <laughs> There's no way you're going to go to yeah. bed. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. You might have to go into suspended animation or something like that. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, it, yeah, it's uh, it is very very interesting uh, mm-hmm. technology and something that I think we might see getting more of an emphasis down. Oh, the look, I think it's going to become stock standard in in the future. I yeah. think this is just going to be normal. They're talking about it uh, as a potential at the moment, but not, I think the time will come where we're just going to see rockets taking off every day for one reason or another. The, the other uh, part to this story, though, uh, and people were probably saying, oh, why is the military getting involved? Why do they have to do this? Well, they have to do this because there's another player in the mix, and that's China. Indeed, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, uh, and China is uh, very much heading in the same direction, I guess, as the US in terms of its its uh, uh, capabilities in space. It's got its own space station. Uh, it's landed several spacecraft on the moon. The first um, the first robotic spacecraft to be landed on the far side of the moon is Chinese, and so um, they will be doing the same kind of thing, maybe. Mm. Well, I, I believe they are. I think are yeah, I think they are working yeah. on this. This is part of their plan. So, um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the US uh, would probably be very naive to just say, oh, it'll never work. We, oh, yes. we won't do that yeah. uh, because they'll yeah. get lof- left behind. In fact, there are some that are saying um, China is very fast uh, going to take over as the absolute superpower in space if um, other countries don't get the let out. So, yeah, the race, yeah. race and is and on. It's the- the race is on. That's right. It's their Long March series, uh, mm. which is um, is uh, really they've got something called Long March Nine, which I don't know too much about. I have to say, uh, which is doing the same sort of thing because the idea is to reuse it to make it reusable, uh, which is the breakthrough. It occurred in 2015 when Elon Musk was the first one to make a relaunchable booster rocket, uh, but now a lot of players in the Space industry are working in the same direction. Um, uh, uh, um, sorry, Jeff Bezos's company, Blue Origin, that's that's already doing that with you know with their um, with a uh, again with their space tourism flights. Yes, indeed, and and this is all going to happen in years, not not decades. This um, uh, multiple yeah. rocket, multiple launches, multiple uh, payloads being shot all over the world, probably not far away at all. So um, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but uh, they've got to get the uh, they've got to get the, the hardware working properly. Yet they they're still working on SpaceX and 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 the Starship rockets, but they'll get it. They'll figure it out. There's no, I don't doubt that. Yeah. Mm. All right. If you want to read that story, um, I believe that one's on fizz.org as well. Uh, that wraps it up, Fred. Um, just a reminder too, uh, if you want to listen to Space Nuts Q&A, that will be coming up on Monday. It'll get downloaded to your uh, respective uh, platforms uh, automatically if you're subscribed to us. And if you're a follower on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button below. 
Uh, thanks, Fred. We will catch up with you real, real soon. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and he joins us every week on Space Nuts. And I hope you'll join us again very, very soon. We'll catch you then. From me, Andrew Dunkley, bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.